You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Uh, this is one of those messages where I feel like I need to keep praying about and learning about. There's some stuff in here. I'm like, God, am I supposed to say that? Or is that just me? Or what am I doing? So while you listen, listen with a grain of salt. You know, bring that before the Spirit. Kind of uh, subject that to Him and ask for help. Um, as we get started, I have brought with us 2020. Right here in a bottle. It's Diet Coke, so it tastes bad. So that's part of why it's 2020. But 2020 started off like any other year. I think, ironically, I remember my family and some friends were over and all together we were like, you know what? 2019 was not great. We could have done without that. (laughs) Little did we know the curse we had just spoken into existence in that moment. It's our fault. We're sorry. But this is 2020. And then this is March, right? And ever since March, more stuff seems to just kind of pile up. What else? What's happened this year? Corona. Corona, yeah. So March, yeah. I don't know what you said, but you're wearing a mask, so I'll say masks. Yep, Uh uh-huh. Yep, so social justice coming up, focusing on that. What else? Killer bees, murder hornets, and things like that. Just let me say, having worked in radio for a few years, like I was always looking for stories that were just fun to talk about. Murder bees aren't fun to talk about, but it's like, hey, here's a weird story. So like some of those stories, like things like that have always kind of shown up and never seemed to really happen um, or not in like as much of an extent that we thought it would. But when it's 2020, you pay attention to the little things even more. Those little stories like, oh, maybe that'll happen, maybe that'll take off. So killer bees, fire natos, Dureco, am I saying that right? It's like an Iowa hurricane land, land hurricane. What would you say, Lacey? Yeah, the, yeah, hurricanes. It's like every, every day is something new. We're just waiting for Sauron to appear in the sky and pretty much explode everything else so the pressure keeps building and building and building and we know all how that works if 2020 was a bottle of diet coke it has been shaking the pressure has been on and it's just getting ready to seep out so let's just go ahead and yep yeah right we all expect that (laughs) and then we didn't even mention politics which would of course be a mentos within all that and the whole thing. I know this hurts Alyssa to watch because she really wanted to drink it. I'm sorry. But the whole thing is just like one big explosion. Guys, like, what the heck are they doing? So, whole thing is just one big explosion. And that, of course, would be 2020. The, the pressure keeps building, things just keep getting more and more out of control. And, of course, you eventually expect it to pop right another example that we might use or illustration would be a bottle episode um this is kind of like a genre of tv episode if you didn't know about it you'll know about it now 
bottle episodes were, I think, more or less invented by Star Trek because the idea was we have a ship in a bottle. How are we going to tell a story interesting enough to keep people's attention if we can't make a new set, if we don't have the expenses to keep building new sets to go film at? We have to make this all work in one room. That's kind of what 2020 has been like. Sitting in a room and the writers have to come up with a story intense enough to be interesting to watch. <laughs> and the pressure keeps building and building and building until the bottle episode eventually reaches its end and you just have this explosion. But when we finally get to that point of everything just blowing up in our faces, the, the stuff that keeps spewing out because the pressure's too high, you just can't take it anymore. What Christians have spewed out in this time has been hard for me to watch. <laughs> Like, if, if that's pulling all the pressure and bursting out the inner parts of our lives, if you've been on social media or just if you've had a casual conversation with someone about masks or anything, you have seen the extent to which everything just like, it's like everybody's barfing on each other, I guess. <laughs> Not the greatest analogy, but we've got Christians in this time have kind of made themselves out to be anti-science, anti-mask, anti-vaccines, anti-life, anti-others, anti-Christ, pro-conspiracy, pro-full allegiance to Trump, pro-America, pro-guns, pro-judgment, pro-death, flag-worshipping, ignorance of racism, selfishness, hatefulness, defensiveness, defiance, arrogance, like this all kind of sums up the, the heart explosion of Christianity. There's almost like this taste to it. You, you scroll past a post, you see the caps lock button on, and you almost immediately know, my Christian friend posted this. <laughs> it's like, you can try this sometime. When you're driving in any city that you're not used to, go through the radio. If, if you're used to Christian music, you know when it's on. They don't have to sing. You hear the guitar like you're like, ah, that's a Christian guitar. <laughs> it's just like this similar grouping, this similar mentality, smell, and you can sense it. And sure enough, you look into the post, you're like, yep, this is a Christian post. And when we look at all this stuff, like sometimes I just feel like Jesus, if he were here right now, what kind of things would he say to us? Because a lot of these things I'd lump into like a new category of 2020 Pharisees or something. The Pharisees thought they were chasing after God, but actually they were chasing after power. They wanted more of it money, finances, they were loaded. They had connections. They were a den of robbers. They lost their witness in ethical debates because they would persecute people around them. Jesus says, you guys have basically, like you've robbed the um, widows of their houses. You devour the houses of widows. What does that mean? We don't fully know, but the general assumption is they've used the law, used God's word in some way to distort and use it to oppress people, probably making widows homeless, taking their houses out from under them. Maybe maybe when their husband died or something like it was don it's supposed to be donated to them or something. Whatever the case may be, these are supposed to be the people of God and they're the oppressors. They're the ones spewing out corruption and spewing out uh a lost witness of who God is. And I imagine part of the reason that Jesus was so upset with them, because a lot of times we don't notice this, but the Pharisees actually seem to be somewhat close theologically to some of the stuff that Jesus believed. 
Like when you look at the Sadducees, like they're way off. <laughs> you look at some of the other sects of Judaism at the time, they seem way off. But the Pharisees, Jesus actually has some overlapping agreement with them on some issues. And how hard it must be to be God in flesh and come meet the people who have somewhat of a good understanding as to who God is, but their hearts are millions of miles away. And they're taking God's name in vain. They're saying, God looks like this. God would do this. This is God over here. And, and when you see what I'm doing, that's, that's who God is. We're, we're the kingdom bringers. We've all been kidnapped. We're in exile as the Jews here stuck in Rome. But follow us. We're living the righteous life. And as God sees us live the righteous life, he's going to come back and save us all. We lost our land because we sinned. So now we're going to gain our land back through righteousness. We're going to get God's attention. And here's God in flesh standing right in front of them. And he's like, <laughs> that's what you think I look like? The way that you're living, that's who you think I am. And Jesus will have none of it. In fact, he's, I tried to think of a word for it. <laughs> I want to say that Jesus was almost heartless with the Pharisees, but of course he has heart, he has love. I almost want to say he's merciless, but of course he has mercy, he has grace. So maybe the word I'm looking for is like harsh or vicious. But Jesus, like, I think of like a, used to be like these old MTV shows of your mama jokes, things like that. And like, <laughs> Jesus gets into this fight with the Pharisees and it's like, ooh, burn, like one after another. Like the things that Jesus has to say about them are very intense. It's like, you guys are sons of the devil. You're a brood of vipers, and when you go out and you make conversions, you make the people that you converted be twice as much the son of hell as you are. Okay, now you invite someone to 1208 to give that message from the stage, and you'll be like, well, don't come back, you know? Like, <laughs> but that's Jesus. He gets up in the Pharisee's face, he tells it like it is, and he's mad at them with this prophetic anger, not this loveless anger, but this prophetic anger for how they are abusing his people. They say that they're the way, but they're not. They act like they're the truth and the life, but they're oppressive and they're hurtful. And worse of all, they're doing all of it in the name of God. And so Jesus steps in and he is not happy with them. I mean, there's one part where like the red letters just go on forever. And like one of the things that he says in the midst of all that is like, look, you guys are like uh, skeletons. You're just, you're a bunch of dead bones in a tomb, in a grave. And, and when the grave is unearthed, what we find inside, like it's just death, no guts. There's nothing, it's just, it's just death. But everybody thinks you look nice because you're all out putting up all the perfume all over the tomb, making it smell good and take the Lysol, wash it down, make sure that the tomb covers all shiny and things like that. But Jesus kind of comes at them. He's like, you think it looks nice, but it's not. You are whitewashed tombs with dead man's bones. He wasn't happy with what they had done to the name of God with their witness. But here's the interesting thing, and this is, this is, I guess, what I would call Jesus' divisiveness. I, <laughs> this is like I said, take this home and kind of test it, chew on it, work it over with God. I know like the point is unity, right? 
that the church is called to be unified. In fact, Jesus told us, like, I'm praying a prayer for, for my disciples and everyone who ever follows them for the rest of existence. Jesus said a prayer for you. And his prayer was that we would be unified. But here we are in 2020, and we just have to be honest, we are not unified. That prayer kind of missed the mark a long time ago. The church has a lot of issues, and some of the things that we're divided about aren't that important because you can find scripture to defend both sides, like whatever, you know, as long as your convictions as to how you're understanding the authoritative word of God is, is within like what is allowable to understand, you can have different feelings on some of those things. But then there's other things that we'll fight about where the Bible, where Jesus himself is just like, this isn't something to fight about. I am for the weak. I am for the oppressed. I am for this and that and that. Let down your guard. Let me in. I have come to liberate the captives, those who are oppressed, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty. In fact, my judgment upon you is, will you join me in that liberation? If you see someone who's hungry and you don't feed them, well, that's the kind of thing that Jesus lumps into someone who's walking their way towards hell. But if you see someone who's hungry and you feed them, someone who's naked and you clothe them, someone thirsty and you give them drink, all these kinds of things, just like this is what it means to follow the narrow road to heaven where few enter. But the road to hell, it's vast, it's wide. And the people who don't care about such things are walking that direction. So did Jesus want unity? Yeah, but I don't think, I mean, we have to ask the question, does, what cost does Jesus want unity? Because it seems to me that much of the church wants to find unity by ignoring Jesus. Well, Jesus says this thing in the scriptures right here. Mm, don't really like that one. So let's just ignore that. And over here, that option, that's not really what I believe, doesn't really line up with what I care about. Yeah, he said it, but let's push that off to the side too. That's not following Jesus. That's not calling him king, where he's the ultimate word and the way and the truth and the life. If he says something to us, it might be hard, it's challenging, it's complicated, we need to sit down with that and understand it better. And challenging as part of the way that you do that. But just writing it off and throwing it out the window because we don't like it. That's not following him. And if someone says, look, I still want to come to church, but I just want to be disobedient to Jesus in this area. So are we all cool with that? That's not creating peace and unity. Yeah, there's grace and mercy on our part when people are falling or struggling through things. But when we live a life just completely contrary to what God calls us to, and we say, just deal with this because I, I want unity and peace, that's ignoring the guy in charge for the sake of keeping people at ease with one another. You know, I think of someone I was having a... I made this post towards the ending of Corona, maybe one of my Diet Coke explosions, I guess, but <laughs> I just had this moment where I was like, I was seeing some of the things that Christians were saying and doing, and it was driving me nuts. And I'm like, guys, this is Christianity 101. And I got one guy who was very upset with me. And then like I explained scripturally what I meant, and he agreed that I was correct scripturally, I think. It was very confusing. I've never had anyone 
changed their mind on Facebook before. That was a first. <laughs> but uh, after he kind of changed, he was still yelling at me because he wanted to be right, I think, but he agreed scripturally that I had made my case. Anyways, like a month later, he texted me out of nowhere. He's like, just want you to know I'm blocking you. <laughs> just want you to know, thanks for letting me know because, you know, that hurts. Uh, also, who are you again? Because I don't know who this person is. And then <laughs> the next part is like, uh, and then... Um, you know, dad shaming. I could never see your dad saying something like that as a pastor. Is like, okay, thank you, very nice. Uh, and then some more stuff. But eventually, the the one that really threw me off was Jamin. Something along the lines of Jamin, you, you keep kind of like getting on your soapbox, bringing Jesus into it. Yes, in fact, I do. I happen to be a pastor, <laughs> and my job is to bring Jesus into it. In fact, if you are here tonight and you are a Christian, your job is, in fact, to bring Jesus into it. Uh, there's my Diet Coke explosion right in front of you. Thank you very much, Isaac. It's a very bothersome statement to me that another Christian would be upset that I brought Jesus into a debate, into a topic. Please understand, friends, if you disagree with me, it's fine. But I don't make ultimatum statements on anything unless I have found a place where Jesus has talked me into an ultimatum statement, which I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, if need be. But... Our lives as Christians in every single thing that we do is to bring Jesus into it. The people on the other side of the conversation may not care if they're not Christians, and you shouldn't expect them to do because you're talking about someone they don't believe in. But if it is another brother or sister in Christ, and you prefer to not bring Jesus into it, and you've missed the very basics of what it means to be Christian, or little Christ, I believe, as that word gets defined in English. You miss the point of what it means to be a Jesus follower if the one you're following, you say, ah, stay over there, I gotta talk about this one alone. What is the cost of our ignorance when we come across subject after subject we're like, I'm going to decide on this one on my own, or I'm more comfortable with this ideology as long as we leave Jesus over there. You have one king and one kingdom as a Christian, and the guy in charge, if you silence him, you are missing the point. And if we keep ignoring Jesus, there's basically two things that will eventually happen. We'll either lose our witness to those who are not saved, if we haven't lost it already, by all the things that we spout out about who Jesus is when that's not who he is or what he looks like, we'll lose our witness to people. Or a younger generation of the church will rise up and they'll rip that two by four right out of our eye and it's going to hurt real bad. <laughs> and we'll finally be able to see the specks in others. But I think we need to get to this point where we have to call ourselves to account of what Jesus calls us to. 
You know, there's plenty of gray areas where like, uh, you know, this is a moral ethical dilemma. It's difficult to understand where Jesus might be standing on this because we need to think it through. But then there's some that are just not and we turn them into that. And Jesus had harsh words for those who made his dad look like someone other than he was. He did not appreciate that. But here's, here's the other side of Jesus' divisiveness, okay? On one side, he had some harsh words for those who represented God but did not do it well. But on the other side, he ate with those people. There's a psalm, right? It's, uh, you've prepared for me a table in the presence of my enemies. Jesus lived that psalm out. A lot of times we think that Jesus was just eating with poor people, and it's true because they're always there. But there's a few stories where Jesus actually eats with the Pharisees, and then the poor people show up. So, like, we, we miss the fact that the Pharisees are there. But can you imagine that? I mean, do you know what's a, a, a bigger miracle than eating with people who will get you slandered throughout your city? A bigger miracle than being willing to be slandered for the sake of loving the lowest of these is the fact that Jesus was willing to eat with the people who would murder him. What kind of audacity is that? Yeah, I know what you're all going to do in the end. I know you've got it out for me. I know you hate me. I see you everywhere I go, whispering about me, riling things up. I've heard that you're all out to, to make sure that I die. And yet I'm going to sit with you and have dinner. And yet we can't even have dinner with someone who, who kind of made a bad joke the last week and kind of hurt our feelings a little bit. <laughs> Jesus eats with the people who murder him. It's love, that's grace, that's mercy. And it must have caught some of their attention, because at least one of them throughout the Gospels, like, he's interested in learning more about Jesus. He doesn't want people to know. He goes to Jesus at night, try to keep it under wraps. But then he's like, Jesus, tell me more. Like, what does it mean to be born again? What are you talking about? And at the end of, I think it's John, he goes and buys Jesus a tomb or helps out with the preparation of Jesus' burial. And he's not the only Pharisee to start catching on. Once you get to Acts, there are Pharisees among the Christians. It always slaps him in the face. It's just kind of stated point blank in the middle of Acts. Just like, and among them were the Pharisees. It's like, what? They know they killed him, right? Like, are they aware at this point? Like, oh, that was God in flesh and we killed him. We're sorry. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal. But Jesus' grace and mercy is so extreme that even Pharisees come to him. Jesus' grace and mercy is so extreme that Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who's oppressing the church, who's hurting God's people, God says, that one, I want him to follow me. Paul begins to follow him. His life is so radically turned around. He's going to the ends of the world with the, the message of who God is. He's willing to go to prison and suffer. He's willing to be stoned and persecuted and shipwrecked. He's a Pharisee. He's a part of the people who had Jesus killed. And yet God so radically and gracefully and mercifully in the middle of him persecuting the church saves Paul and Paul completely turns around. 
This is Jesus' divisiveness, if you will. Jesus is willing to sit at the table with those who might persecute the church. But at the same time, he's not willing to just let them say whatever they want to make his father look bad. And he corrects them very sternly. And a lot of times when we hear people paint false pictures of who God is, we're just like, ah, well, we'll just let that one go. That's just the way that they are and, and so on. We'll see them at church next week. They won't bring it up there. It's only in these circles where they go there. Now, the Bible understands that sometimes there's correction for the things that we say, that sometimes there needs to be repentance for the images that we paint God in. That's, that's what it means you got use God's name in vain. A lot of times we're like, oh, it's just saying, oh, my God. No, I, I agree that that is a like profane way of referring to God. But the idea behind using God's name in vain is attributing him to whatever it is that you do and say. Like if a prophet used God's name in vain, the way that they would be doing it is taking a false word and saying, the Lord has stamped his approval on this. This is what he says. No, it's a lie. You've spoken on his behalf and you're wrong. When we go out and we say, oh, God's like this and that and that, we've stamped an approval of the Lord upon this. And God looks at us and says, no, I'm not. I'm not like that. And that's something that we need to repent of. How ultimatum of a statement can we make when we make statements? Does the Bible actually say it, or are we just going with the things that we feel? I realize to some extent tonight, I'm just kind of like diet coking over everyone. <laughs> just kind of bursting out uh, uh, a bunch of feelings from the last few months, but this is a part of our Jesus Justice series. And the reason it is it's because there's a lot of statements made about justice from Christians. When you see the statement, like it, it belittles lives, it shrinks it down, it doesn't care about it. And I feel like Jesus would sometimes look to us and say, that's not what I said. And you're stamping my name all over that. Care about the people I cared about, whatever shape it might be. If it's refugees, Jesus was a refugee. He had to run away when he was born to another land to be safe. That's what it means to take refuge somewhere. It's not a political statement, it's a Jesus statement. If it's abortion, Jesus was almost aborted. Herod came around and tried to have him killed. Jesus was threatened with that. If it's racism, We'll find throughout all of Acts that God was trying so hard to say, church, stop being racist. Peter, why'd you just leave the Gentiles so that you wouldn't get in trouble with the Jews? I sent you over to the Gentiles. And when we just throw all these things, all these justice issues, like oh, God doesn't care that much. The Bible really does. Jesus really does. 
And we get back to that ultimate statement of Jesus saying, when you oppress people like this, you oppress me. And when you love people like this, you love me. And there might be a lot of hard conversations to work through on the justice fronts and things like that. You can't always just claim that something's the way it is. It takes time to understand things. But if our heart is not for the broken, if our heart does not care for justice, then Jesus would often look at us and say, do you care about me? So we turn our hearts to him. We always bring Jesus into the conversation. (laughs) And we ask for direction. How would you have us live day by day, issue to issue? Let our hearts be conformed to yours, recognizing that one day Jesus will make us so much like him. It will basically be like a thinking the same on on everything will be healed even in the way that we practice our wisdom that's a joyous day to come but we don't just ignore what the bride of Christ looks like right now saying well one day she'll be fixed no if we saw the bride of Christ hobbling up to the altar to meet Jesus with blood all over her and pain of the things that she's not only done but experienced herself, we would look at that woman and we'd say, I want to help her. And that's where we're at right now, the bride hobbling. Do we just say one day she'll be healed or do we say let's enter recovery right now? Enter recovery. So we're going to come up, and I knew because I'd probably feel a little fiery while I was talking that I'd have to intentionally choose a song to chill me out a little bit. Uh, So the song that we have is Kindness, which is based on this Bible verse. We have this Bible verse where Paul's like, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Uh, And that's what we need as we figure out how to bring God's prophetic word and his call for justice and hope and desire for love even in the midst of whatever explosions we face that we bring that all in so that we live more like him every day